Portland, Oregon, how are you doing tonight? Pinball is when my brain shuts off and my reflexes turn on. Me versus the pinball machine. I'm Zach. I'm playing a band called Portugal Demand. This is Jason. That first week, all we did every day was find new restaurants to eat at. We were like kids in a candy store. We live here. This is our home. Holy shit. The best place in the world. Portland's got this like perfect little recipe for what I would consider to be the ideal weed experience. I see hip-hop in Portland becoming like the most popular genre. It's just growing and it's thriving. We are the ones who create the things that people are go crazy about. I've heard a lot about this place, Portland, Oregon. The city's reputation kind of precedes it. A birthplace of alternative culture, a testing ground for progressive lifestyles, a music haven, an un-America Portland sounds like a utopia for people who love creative spaces, live music, vintage shopping, for people who prefer a much slower pace to other sprawling cities. Pretty much made for me. That's the Portland narrative, at least. I haven't been here long, but it's clear that there's more to Portland than pop culture would have me know. This is a city of many stories, many shades and many perspectives. And that's what I'm here to discover. Hi, I'm Faustina Rogoli, and over the next six episodes, I'm going to unpack this city and take you with me. Welcome to Portland Unpacked. I'm starting up high. So what I was like thinking about this Mm -hmm. spot as soon as we got here was like how romantic it seemed. It does seem really romantic. It definitely seems like a first kiss kind of place. Yeah, or this a... is totes first kiss place. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Get it on. My first stop is the top of a mountain, so I can get my bearings with a Portland local. Well, you guys lucked out on the weather. It's pretty amazing up here. I'm surrounded by these towering pine trees, which smell incredible. And then all these red and orange autumn trees are tumbling down the mountain. To me, it really kind of feels like like sort of like a patchwork quilt situation where the forest bleeds into the city. I'm hanging with Sarah Merck. There's an eagle in the sky. <laughs> We've come to a lookout high up in Forest Park. <laughs> it does look majestic though, doesn't it? It does. It looks really <laughs> it's the biggest forested urban park in the US, which is crazy when you think about it. 28 square kilometers of forest right in the middle of the city. We chose this spot to meet because I've just arrived in Portland and Sarah's giving me the lay of the land. This this is quite the view. We can see a forest down below us. And then beyond that, you see downtown Portland. Those are all the tall buildings there. There's not a lot of them. You can see the river there, right beyond downtown. And then beyond that, there's a whole series of mountains. That's the Cascade Range of Mountains. And on a clear day, right in front of us, there would be Mount Hood, which is like a beautiful snow-capped mountain. It looks like a kid's drawing of a mountain, like a big triangle covered in white. From up here, this place does not look like other American cities I've visited. The way the trees and mountains form a protective hug around the city. It reminds me of a quote I read before coming here. It's by this guy, Lewis Mumford, who, just like me, was visiting Portland. The quote kind of stuck with me. So yeah, I'm just going to read it for you. I have seen a lot of scenery in my life, but I have seen nothing so tempting as a home for a man than this Oregon country. 
You have the basis here for civilization on its highest scale, and I'm going to ask you a question which you may not like. Are you good enough to have this country in your possession? Have you got enough intelligence, imagination, and cooperation among you to make best use of these opportunities? Jeez, that's heavy. <laughs> Lewis Mumford said that back in 1938. And all these years later, I can still feel what he felt when I look out at this view. So can Sarah. I'm like a, let's just save every tree, save every fish, humans be gone kind of person. But, <laughs> but you know, I think we have better protection of nature in Oregon than you do pretty much anywhere else in the country. So, I mean, we're standing right now in this beautiful forest and forest park. And a lot of places this would be a parking lot. Looking at the development of other American cities, Portland might have ended up becoming one giant parking lot. Instead, it's become a progressive, eccentric, sustainable rainbow town of a city where music and creativity reign and harvesting fruit from your neighbour's yard is a normal part of daily life. And Portland becoming this way? It's no accident. It's like the people of Portland heard Mumford's words back in the 1930s and took them on as some kind of challenge. To understand why things are different here, to understand Portland, I need to understand its history. Sarah Merck has been living here since 2008. What I really liked about it when I moved here was that it felt like anything was possible. Um, I didn't have any money. I literally had like $200 when I moved here. And I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to be an artist. And I thought that Portland seemed like the most possible place to do that. Today, Sarah is working as a writer and a zine artist. She makes beautiful and informative zines about Portland's past. Stories that help explain how Portland became the city it is today. I think it's important for people to know the history of Portland because they understand the city isn't, hasn't always been the way that it is right now. I think you see the city as it is and think it's just always been this way. And you don't know who used to live here or who's been displaced or what communities have come and gone or how the city's policies and laws have affected like where people can live and how, how many parks we have and all those kinds of things. So I think it helps people not just take their current reality as a given or as normal, but to see it as the result of like generations of different processes at work. Lewis Mumford in 1938 was not the first human to notice that Portland, or rather the land that became Portland, is one of huge natural and spiritual value. Before explorers and settlers arrived, Indigenous people had lived here for thousands of years. Right up the Columbia River, there's a place called Celilo Falls, and there's a Celilo village there that is one of the oldest continuously occupied places in North America. So humans have lived here for a long, long time, fished the salmon. There's lots of, like, natural food that occurs here. There's lots of berries you can eat. There's lots of things you can grow. So, yeah, it's been an indigenous land for thousands and thousands of years. Before white settlement, this area was a natural paradise. The land was surrounded by mountains, which made it difficult to access. Its hidden beauty and riches were a reward for those who managed to find their way into it, which is exactly what happened. 
it's been like contested colonial territory for like during the 1800s um, and onward. There were like, there were some like French fur trapper people, there were British ships, and then the American government coming westward. What attracted early settlers to this land that eventually became Portland? The same thing they look for anywhere, which is money and land. And here the money was in trees, so lumber, and then in fur, so in trapping beavers and that kind of thing. But a lot, a lot of lumber. So Portland, you can see that everywhere. There's huge trees. There's every place is like named after a timber baron. <laughs> There's, uh, that, that's where the money was, was lumber. Portland then, and still now, is known for its trees. Big, tall Douglas firs. Over the 1800s, more and more lumber workers started moving in. The logging industry transformed Portland from a settlement into a bustling town. Portland was like a pretty seedy logging town. I mean, the loggers were all men, so it's like a town of all men, basically. If you can imagine what that was like. There were lots of bars. There were lots of brothels. There was at one point like like a floating brothel out in the river. <laughs> that sounds really oh intense. Oh my god! <laughs> um, and that's when you know business is booming. Yeah, <laughs> and I helped them like evade the police being out on the river. Ah. So yeah, so in its early years, like Portland had like a lot of fast money from the logging, but not a lot of like culture. It was just like a lot of men cutting down trees, trying to make as much money as possible. Oh. A pretty exploitive economy to the natural resources. By the turn of the century, Portland was shaping into a proper city, and civic leaders started noticing other cities across the country were booming into big metropolises. They were worried that Portland and the rest of the Northwest was getting left behind. It was around this time that Lewis Mumford was brought in, the guy that came to Portland in the 30s and said, are you good enough to have this country in your possession? Mumford was from New York. He was an intellectual, a cultural commentator, and an advocate for preserving the natural environment. He'd been chosen to provide a new vision for Portland because, well, he wrote the book on utopias. Like, literally, he published a book called The Story of Utopias. But his vision was overshadowed by a competing school of thought, one that was sweeping across America and taking over Portland. Like city planners said, okay, our city looks this way. Like we need some big, like public projects to put into place here to make it like, like just like put put it in a place on the map. And some of those projects involved, uh, like bulldozing entire marginalized communities to build theaters or a stadium, and that has had a really destructive legacy of displacement. At the time, there was one surefire way to bring your city into the 20th century. And that was with lots and lots of concrete. So during the 1960s and 70s, there was a big like national movement to build a lot of freeways around the country. And um, in Portland, we built a few of them. But then there was a big like citizen pushback against that, saying, hey, we don't want our houses torn down to build freeways. We don't want our parks taken out to build freeways. There was like this big grassroots movement, and it worked. Portland was supposed to build a big freeway through what is now Southeast Portland, like along Division Street. Instead of doing that, they stopped the project, the state stopped the project, and instead used the money to fund what became Portland's light rail system, so the MAX. And so we were one of the first like cities in the country to have like an above-ground light rail system that had some money behind it because they stopped building the freeway. 
Portland still has a few freeways, but this rejection of the new freeways was a real turning point in Portland's history. It was when Portland realised what kind of city it wanted to be, one that didn't follow the same path as the rest of America. And it wasn't just freeways. They didn't want to be buried in megamalls, they didn't want car parks, or any other shrines to consumerism. I think some of my first impressions about being here was that for Portland to be what it is today, it required a lot of intention and thought and planning. So I can imagine that that was very much a top-of-mind thing back in the day, right? Yeah, I don't know about back when Portland first started, but like since the mid-1900s at least, there's been a lot of thought around not wanting Portland to sprawl out like other American cities. And so Portland planners put into place a thing called the Urban Growth Boundary, which is kind of a ring around the city where it's harder to develop beyond. So the idea behind that was both protecting farmland outside of the city so it doesn't just become suburb and making people build denser in the city. So building up the neighborhoods that are already here rather than expanding out into the suburbs. This is why today I can jump in a car and be in Forest Park in less than 10 minutes. It's thanks to these people back in the 60s and 70s who looked around and thought, no more shopping malls, no more car parks. Instead, let's prioritise public parks and bikes. What Portland has been trying to get away from is that kind of top-down planning where it's like the mayor says, let's do this, and, you know, an entire community is bulldozed. And what the city is trying to move more toward and people would debate whether this has happened or not, is more of a grassroots-style planning where neighbourhoods and communities can say, we want this, and the city's job is to make it happen. As a result, freeways were converted into bike paths, and new bridges were built just for pedestrians. In the 90s, Portland became a centre for the arts, an affordable haven for creatives and makers like Sarah. It also embraced the legacy of Lewis Mumford by valuing the natural environment. It shaped the way people interact with each other too. Okay, the culture in Portland is like extremely sincere and extremely earnest and people are so warm and like so happy to get to know you as a person that it's almost a joke. I remember I was living in Philly for a few months in Philadelphia and then I came back here and I went to a bar and like I walked up to the bar and the bartender was like, hey, how are you? And I was like, do I know this guy? <laughs> I did not. He was just a nice bartender. And that's like the that's the feeling here. People are very much like, I see you and like, how are you doing? Like, I really do want to talk about it. We keep wandering through Forest Park. Eventually we come full circle and Sarah leads us to the lookout where we can take in the view again and get the lowdown on Portland's neighborhood system. She points out where I'm staying, the Jupiter Next Hotel on the east side of the bridge, and then points out where she lives in southeast Portland. What is it about your neighbourhood that you like? I like that everyone's house is really cute and everyone has, like, done something to their house. People here are really into, like, gardening and into, like, making their stuff just, like, feel like theirs. And so all my neighbours have a huge garden in the front of their yard and it's like flowing out into the street. So right now it's fall and it just feels like there's like an orchard in my in my neighborhood. Like right across on my block there's a fig tree, a persimmon tree, two apple trees, a big grove of mint, like a bunch of oregano and thyme and it's all just like out there on the street. So it feels like a really like a place of 
bounty. It feels really like like a big garden in the neighborhood. Is there a lot of sharing going on amongst the community? One group I like here in Portland is called the Portland Fruit Tree Project. And they're a group where if you have a fruit tree in your yard, let's say you have an apple tree and you're feeling overwhelmed, you can ask the Portland Fruit Tree Project to come and harvest all the apples for you. And then they give some to the food bank, they give some to you, and then they give some to all the people that help harvest the apples. I didn't know it yet, but wandering around the neighbourhoods and peeking into people's colourful gardens would soon become my favourite thing to do here. Looking out over the city, the sun pouring over the reflective high-rises surrounded by autumnal forest, it seems idyllic. But like all cities that have experienced the growth that Portland has, it has a complicated history. For Portland, it's around housing. So in Portland and every other city in America, we have a really unequal history of housing here. So we have a lot of housing discrimination. And the most obvious form of that is who is allowed to buy a home in a certain neighborhood. And so for much of America's history from like World War II onward, people could apply for loans. And the only people whose loans would be approved in certain neighborhoods were white people. And so in every city in the United States, like there's were basically concentrated communities where it was the only place where black people and other people of color could buy a home. And that process is called redlining because literally the mortgage lenders drew a red line around a neighborhood and would say, this neighborhood is for the people of color and the rest of the city is for the white people. And in Portland, the neighborhood that was the predominantly African-American neighborhood is called Albina. It's on the east side. And that was the only place where you could buy a home if you were a black Portlander. Today, that neighbourhood is a very different scene. It's a hub of activity. Bars, cafes, bookshops, a place popular with locals and visitors. The main street in Albina is Alberta Street. It's a perfect example of old and new Portland mashed together. On one block, you're passing colourful weathered houses with ageing vine-covered fences. On the next block, the footpath has recently been widened and new trees have been planted and they're no more than a foot high. Right at the centre of Albina sits the cafe Proud Mary. That's where I'm heading to now. Hey, Nolan. Hey. How you doing? Nice to meet you. Oh, nice yeah. to meet you, yeah. man. How's it going? Yeah, really good. Right. You've got such a beautiful space. Yeah, well, welcome, welcome to Portland. Thank you. Nice to have you here. Yeah. Um, nice to be here, man. Why don't we grab you a table? Come sit up front All and right, um, have a yarn. Yep. Let's go. Came here, walked in, and just the bare bones of the space. Those timber beams that run through it? I mean, they don't they don't make timber beams like that anymore. That's like the, you know, back in the day. I like seeing the character of a building. So it felt right. This is Nolan Hurt. Proud Mary is his place. And as you can probably tell, he's not from Portland. My roots are the Pilbara, Western Australia. I used to be, like, shy about it, somewhat embarrassed about it. Mining town, middle of nowhere... In between the Pilbara and Portland, Nolan lived in Melbourne, which is where Proud Mary started. And I remember when we first opened Proud Mary in Melbourne, on Twitter, someone was like, like labelled us as hipsters because we, you know, we're into coffee, we're into like fine food and all these things. And my response was like, hipster, um, try hard-ass feral from the bush. More than a decade on, and Proud Mary is a Melbourne institution. So why, of all places, did Nolan decide to shift to Portland? 
there's a lot of action that happens here, yeah. and there's a lot of um, opportunity from here. Like it's a it's a town that the rest of the US watches. Like so many before him, Nolan got a good feeling about this place. He was ready for the next thing, looking for somewhere that felt edgy enough to try something new, but safe enough to take a punt. And that was Portland. So I flew my parents over and um, me and my mum and uh, my dad did, did the build. And, oh my gosh. Um, so we made the tables, we made the chairs, my mum did the upholstery, <laughs> all the wall lining, the bulkhead, the you name it, we kind of um, did it. And it was... That's why it feels homely. Uh, yeah, that's why it feels that way it does, because it's yeah. got like this like, love in it. And my parents are in there, and it's like, I don't know, it's a really special feeling. Yeah, and, you can feel that yeah. when you step in. Proud Mary in Portland is clearly a favourite among locals, but it's a new generation of locals. Another chapter in this changing city. There's definitely a lot of history here. I like that we're a part of that. Over the years, um, it was like a car mechanics. There was a, a Mexican deli, delicatessen on the corner. Um, and it was reasonably rough. It was kind of like a, a warehouse, garage space, um, bringing cars in and out. Um, the first tenant ever in this building in like 1910 was uh, Im- immigrants from um, I- Italy. And um, they had like a, a department store here. And there's a really cool photo of them standing up the front. And I just like the fact that the first people that did something in this space were not from here. That fits nicely with us, you know. Since redlining became illegal, the area has evolved into a trendy centre for food and arts. We've copped a bit of heat, and fair enough, because this has become a gentrified street, just like Collingwood did around us. It grew around us. I want to venture beyond the shiny and new parts of Alberta Street, I say goodbye to Nolan and down the rest of my coffee. Kind of tastes like home. I step out onto the street, which has so much old charm and character. All the cafes and galleries and bookshops that run up and down are squeezed into small, colourful buildings. There's a real lived-in feel, a strong sense of community. A diversity rainbow flag that acknowledges black and brown people. That is very cool, in front of a cafe. I don't think I've ever seen one of those, like, waving in public before. I've seen, like, the image online. Portland's affection for the weird and alternative shines through. Oh, my gosh, look, there's, like, a dated sign of the Wiggles. What? <laughs> the Wiggles be about Portland. <laughs> what the hell? That's so random. There's a shop selling mushrooms. Those kind of mushrooms. I get to a side street and I come across the offices of an organisation called the Black United Fund. One whole side of the building is covered in a giant artwork that stops me in my tracks. I've read about this artwork. This is the one by um, that artist Icho, honouring the African-Americans that have um, lived here over the years. The painting is a giant fantasy landscape woven with blossoming flowers and enormous birds spreading their wings. It's all swirling around huge portraits of African-American women that have left an enormous legacy, like Maya Angelou and Coretta Scott King. I really like this mural because you get to see blackness in all of its excellence and you see these women that look strong and radiant and beautiful and there's beautiful kids in this mural. I really love it. 
This mural was painted to keep the conversation going about Albina's history so it doesn't wash away. It serves to remind us of who made a life here in the past. I get the sense there's a lot more to this city than meets the eye, and I'm going to unpack all of it. Coming up on the rest of Portland Unpacked, I'm going to uncover more stories from this incredible place, meet the people that give this city its alternative, creative reputation, and get to the bottom of why everyone feels the pull of Portland. On the next episode of Portland Unpacked, we meet the Portland women making waves from craft booze to sophisticated cannabis culture. So, yeah, I just began a ton of research. I knew I wasn't the maker. I wasn't, you know, I feel like men can kind of get away with that story of like, oh, we were screwing around in our basement and holy shit, came up with this great beer and let's start selling it. Like, I knew women couldn't get away with that story. I had to have the pro. 